This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, so sufficiency, right? So we've looked through um, necessity, authority, tied to inspiration. So just unpacked biblical doctrine of inspiration. There's other areas that we can look at. I mean, before you've had clarity, sufficiency. These are often seen as the attributes of Scripture. But out of that, even at break, there's all kinds of issues that we have to wrestle with, with canon, the recognition of, ins of inspired books, uh, the issues of reliability, trustworthiness, inerrancy, all these matters. So I'm sure in future sessions, right, you'll, you'll work on, you'll probably be developing that in future, future weeks. But we are only going to look at um, these three areas, right? But all those areas are fine and important, very important discussions, right? So I just have on, on the handouts I gave you, and we'll have to be careful we don't uh, go too far astray from them, just for time's sake here. But I, I just simply pick up the idea of, of Scripture sufficiency doesn't stand alone type of thing, right? I mean, it's sufficiency is because it's God's Word, right, which is then tied to inspiration. It's because it is the inspired Word of God that is from God that it's sufficient. Right? Uh, you can't think of any book, human book, just simply being sufficient in and of itself, right? That would be an impossible claim, right? Yet, we're not claiming that this is just merely a human book. We're claiming that it's ultimately tied to the triune God who knows all things, plans all things, governs all things, rules, and wants his people. This is also tied to God's covenant relationships with us, right? He's given his word to govern our lives. He's given his word to uh, know him, right? Uh, f so he wants us to have his word so that uh, it can be sufficient, so it can lead us to life and godliness. I mean, all of that is important. That's why I have, it's the important God-Scripture relationship, right? We can't talk about the doctrine of Scripture apart from the specific view of God, right? These two go hand in hand. If you have, you know, a God who's a deistic sense, where God creates but he's not active in the world, you'll never get the doctrine of Scripture, right? If you have... Uh, a God that's developing through historical process, right? That's known as panentheism or process theism and so on. You'll never get the doctrine of scripture, right? It assumes a certain understanding of creator to creature to God to his relationship to, uh, to the world, right? Now, scripture is then, in terms of sufficiency, what God wants us to know to be in covenant relationship with him. So I have here under the introductory, all things necessary to know and glorify God. To experience redemption in Christ, Scripture is enough, right? And of course, sufficiency is going to be ultimately tied to its purpose, Scripture's purpose, right? What's the purpose of Scripture? Well, ultimately, it's to know God, right? It's to have life and godliness, to be have experienced redemption in Christ. So at that point, right, nothing needs to be added to it, right? You don't need more to be added to it to know more about how to have faith in Christ. Uh, you don't need anything more to be added to it to know how to have your sins forgiven. Uh, to how to stand in right relationship uh, to him. Scripture is final, it's sufficient for our norm, for the knowledge of God, for what we need to know about ourselves, and even what we know need about the world. Now we'll have to expand this a bit to the relationship of God's revelation and creation that we need to know, right, and study, we look at his world uh, in terms of scripture, but in this area, in terms of uh, the knowing and glorifying God, experiencing redemption in Christ, right? Scripture is sufficient, right? And the famous sort of phrase that comes to us, it's our ruling rule, 
right? It's our rule for our knowledge of God, and it rules us, right? Uh, other traditions, other authorities will be under it, right? So they function as a ruled rule, right? That's tradition, but here it functions as sufficient, authoritative, final, and, and so on. Now, where do we see this? Well, I give you just a little section here on you know, the warrant, right? How the Bible would treat sufficiency and, you know, this would have to be treated across the entire canon. I mean, I think what we've already looked at was 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed, right? And even prior to that, verse 15, right? The Old Testament was sufficient to lead to the knowledge of Christ, right? Uh, all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for, and of course it's Old Testament, but the New Testament's added. It's useful for, right? For teaching, right? Where do we go to be taught, right? Scripture, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. This is what it's for, right? You also see this in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 3. I give you that text there, Matthew 4, 4. That's what Jesus quotes. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? You can look at other passages, Deuteronomy 17. These are just Old Testament texts that assume that God's word is sufficient for life and godliness to be pleasing to him, to live our lives in relationship to him. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 and 19 picks up the role of the king. So as Israel goes into the land, this is Moses writing uh, in the wilderness before they've entered the promised land, and he says, I'm not going with you, but when you go into the land and you ask for a king, which eventually they do, with Saul, right? This is what the king is supposed to be like. Um, and then as he describes the king, the king is to be the one who, when he takes the throne, verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17, uh, he is to write for himself a scroll of the copy of the law, take it from the priests who are the Levites, is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so they may learn to revere the Lord as God, follow carefully all the words of the law, these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers uh, and turn from the law, right? So here's what is, what's to guide the king. How is he supposed to govern? How is he supposed to make wise decisions? He's supposed to follow the law of God, right? So here you have, in some sense, the sufficiency, right? Scripture is authoritative, and it is also to then guide and direct their lives. Psalm 1, we mentioned that. Psalm 19, famous psalm where you have the heavens declare the glory of God, and then it turns in verse 7 and following to the Scripture, right? Um, the law of the word is perfect, Lord is perfect, right? Reviving the soul. Uh, it is that which can lead us to the knowledge of God. And then Psalm 119 or John 17, 17 is, is Jesus will say, you know, your word is truth, sanctify them, make them holy. And well, that's tied to our entire life of godliness by your word, right? So this is God's authoritative word, how it's to function then in our lives. I give you under biblical warrant number B, um, we are also forbidden to add and subtract, <laughs> right? So now God can add and subtract, right? So we do have a progress of revelations, more scripture is added, yet we aren't to come and say, I don't like that bit. <laughs> We're going to cut it out. Or I want to add something else to it, right? No, we follow what the word of God is in its entirety. So as the Pentateuch, Torah is laid down, as the later prophets are laid down, as the New Testament is laid down, right? All of that becomes sufficient, right? We don't add to it, we don't subtract from it. 
even the book of Revelation finishes, right? Even though it applies to that prophecy. It's not accidental that it concludes the entire canon. Don't add to this. <laughs> Don't subtract from this, right? So there's eventually, right, with the whole writing of Scripture, an entire body of literature, right? A canon that reaches conclusion in Christ. What's the New Testament ultimately? The New Testament ultimately is the revelation that is found in Christ, the unpacking of that for us, who he is and what the church is and what he has established and so on. Now, point C picks up just simply aspects of sufficiency, right? So we won't look at all of these for, for time's sake, but right, faith in Christ alone is from the scripture. How do you know that? How do you know what faith in Christ is? What do you know what he's done? It comes from the scripture, right? The purpose of scripture is to lead us to the covenant promises in Christ, right? John can say in John 20, 31, I write this gospel so that you may believe and come to faith in Christ. Our growth in Christ, 1 Peter, be great to look at, 1 Peter 1, um, I have 2.2, two, but really it goes chapter 1, verse 22, right? Our growth in Christ is tied to the word of God, the pure word of God, right? Uh, Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word, right? So how is he to carry out his ministry? In season, out of season, right? That, that authoritative word is to govern all of your life and thinking, right? And you're to, to dispute and to reject false doctrine, build the truth in light of God's word. Now, point D is important, right? I've sort of alluded to this, but it's very important when we think of the sufficiency of Scripture to also speak of, for us now, an entire closed revelation, entire closed canon, right? So that at every point, right, God has revealed himself over time, right? Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke many times various ways. That speaks of repetitive, and it speaks about a period of time, right? But in these last days, all of that has come to conclusion in Christ, right? That's why the canon is closed. There's no revelation beyond Christ, right? All that's written about him brings everything to its closure, right? At every point when God gave to Israel, say, the first five books of the Bible first, the Torah, the law, right? Right? That was sufficient for them. That was enough for them. But then he adds more as redemptive history unfolds and God's plan is revealed and that is enough for them. But for us, right, we live in the second best place in all of human history, right? We live in a greater period than when Moses lived, than when Isaiah lived, than when even John the Baptist lived, right? John the Baptist eventually died and never saw the death of Christ and never saw the resurrection, right? That's why Jesus says of all people born among women, you're the greatest because you bore witness of me, but anyone who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than you. <laughs> right? Because we live after all of these events. Right? We live at the second best time. The best time is when Jesus comes again. But right now we have a closed canon. We have a fullness of revelation now closed in him. Right? Hebrews 1, all of this has been summed up in Christ. So we now right, have a sufficiency that's now tied to an entire Bible, right? So at every point, God's word was enough, but he's also brought things to a conclusion in that sense, right? So that that's very, very important, and we'll leave this topic for another time, <laughs> but uh, maybe you can unpack this in later sessions on the doctrine of scripture. This is very, very important for our interpretation of the Bible and our application of it, right? Think of application, right? When you go read Leviticus, you don't apply it by saying, I got to get on my jet plane 
and go to Israel and go visit the Levitical high priest. Now you say, well, obviously, that's all been done away with. But the very fact that you say that <laughs> means that you apply that scripture to you differently than if you lived in that time period, right? If you lived in the time period of Moses, you would apply Leviticus to you as they did. We now apply it in light of Christ, right? So that just simply means sufficiency, right, has to take into consideration now for us a whole Bible, right? This is why our interpretation must not just pull text out of context, but we must see how they fit in terms of the unfolding revelation, the whole canon, and, and so on, right? Yet with the entire canon now being closed, right? You put it, you know, it's almost like draw like a big box, you know, a, a big box in that sense, right? You have the whole canon, it's all closed in terms of Christ. The whole Bible now is applied to us, but we don't now go beyond it, right? We don't say, well, you know, Paul gave us a first century ethic that doesn't apply to us today because we know better in terms of latest psychological theories, right? This happens often with, say, discussions of homosexuality, right? Paul did not know anything about homosexual desire. Thus, we've learned that today. Therefore, we don't have to follow what he says here. Well, I don't think so. Right? Uh, Paul, yes, we have to understand the Old Testament in light of the New, but eventually with a closed canon, right, that whole Bible now in light of Christ now applies to us. Right? We don't go beyond the Bible. We stay within the closing of the canon. So there are some past aspects of Scripture that don't apply to us directly anymore, right? The Levitical system doesn't apply directly. But that's because of the work of God in redemptive history that's now come to fulfillment in Christ, right? We don't go beyond it. We don't go beyond the canon, right? Um, you can, if you have a male child, you're welcome to circumcise them, but you don't have to do that covenantally now, right? That's just simply something that is a choice, right? Now, why is that? It's not because we don't like that practice and we're going to get rid of it, no. It's because Scripture itself said, now that Christ has come, circumcision is nothing. It's Scripture itself that's telling you how to apply it, right? That's very important for sufficiency, right? So sufficiency is the entirety of Scripture is sufficient for us. But we have to take, you know, seriously in the sense of a whole Bible, a proper application of it, and and so on right now i'll give you a definition of sufficient sufficiency that comes from wcf is uh, westminster confession of faith so this is 1600s i could have picked baptist confession i should have looked at the sovereign grace um statement of faith i know jeff and company would have had a good statement on on sufficiency but um i just pulled this right this is a famous famous and it's interesting here where it speaks about sufficiency is the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, our salvation, faith and life. Right? Notice what it's doing. It's tying it to God's purpose. Right? Uh, is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from scripture. Right? So as we read scripture, right, I mean, we have to draw conclusions. We, we properly interpret, properly apply. The doctrine of the Trinity, for instance. Right? Uh, God is one right across the canon. Yet, as we work in the revelation of God across the canon, there's a Father, there's a Son, there's a Spirit, right? There's no one text that gives you the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, closest to it would be Matthew 28, right? To baptize in the name of singular Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But even then, it doesn't spell it all out. So we have to put data together. That doesn't count against sufficiency, right? That's just part of a proper 
interpretation. So that's what they mean by good and necessary consequence. Uh, nothing is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men, right? So this is written in the post-Reformation era. There were some who were coming along the Anabaptists and were saying, we have a new revelation that we're going to add. No, 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 right? It's closed. Or simply tradition. No, 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 right? And so then it speaks about uh, other areas as well. So as we put sufficiency together, right? We must, I'll give you a few points here. We must define sufficiency first in terms of Scripture's purpose. Its purpose is to lead us to the knowledge of God in Christ, right? It's to lead us to faith and godliness. That's its purpose, right? Now, it's going to cover other areas, but we have to make sure that we are not claiming, I mean, making sufficiency or something the Bible doesn't claim, right? It's claiming to be sufficient for the knowledge of God, to know ourselves, to know how to rightly relate to God, to how to live a godly life now until we wait the coming of Christ and so on. All things necessary for his own glory, our salvation, faith and life. This is what we mean by faith and practice, right? So our doctrinal formulations, what we say about God, what we say about ourselves, what we say about what sin is, what we say about marriages, what we, we go back and say, what has God said, right? How has he addressed those issues? And that's why I have the notion of faith, belief, doctrine, theology, and so on, right? So Paul can say in Galatians 1, if an angel preaches another gospel, let him be accursed, right? We preach what is given, right? And that's what we bind people's consciences with and so on right to follow the apostolic word or testing all viewpoints Colossians 2 says that we are not to be held captive by empty hollow philosophies according to human tradition right there is a philosophy according to Christ right? but there's also human tradition right? that sets itself against the knowledge of Christ well we're to test those things well, what do we test them from? Well, we test them according to Christ. We test them according to Scripture, right? So all of our beliefs must be grounded in Scripture in terms of faith and practice. Uh, we must be aware of adding. Mark 7 is very, very important here. Jesus indicts the religious leaders for adding to Scripture. He says, you've added Corbin, right? So that whole way of evading, <laughs> taking care of your parents uh, so you could pay the temple tax. Sounds like contemporary politicians, right? Um, I mean, you do the same thing, right? You add it to Scripture. Uh, even their understanding of the Sabbath was flawed, right? Uh, it's not as if you could ever help somebody, but they took it that way and, and so on. And Jesus says, you must not add to Scripture, right? So testing all revelations, right? Now, at this point, I give you a caution with our beliefs and everything. We have to be very careful of moving beyond scripture in terms of speculation, right? There's some areas that scripture hasn't fully addressed, right? So we wrestle with, well, what about, you know, all of the unbelievers that have never heard the gospel and so on? Well, we have enough to go on that, well, they have general revelation. They're responsible for that. But some of the areas you say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? You sometimes have to say, I don't know. I mean, we'll leave that in God's head. This is what I do know. This is enough to say what we're going to say, right? Uh, sometimes we have that notion with, well, what about infants and salvation? And all? Well, um, many think, right, that infants, there will be maybe a special case, but we don't know. I mean, we don't have enough data on all of this, right? So you have to be very, very careful. Well, what about this? Why did God in his sovereignty allow this? Well, we can work through what scripture says, but in the end, he has not told us everything. 
so we have to be very careful that our understanding of faith and practice is tied to what God has said, right? Speculation according to what Scripture teaches is fine, trying to put two and two together. But to go beyond where Scripture doesn't give, we have a tendency to do that, and we have to be very careful. And then in practice, right, obviously in our lives, family, churches, right? So how does the Scripture regulate our churches? Well, it teaches about elders and deacons. It teaches about, you know, as we gather together, we preach God's word, we sing. I mean, that often regulates our worship. And then other things it doesn't address. There's freedom in that area, right? Uh, it speaks about what's um, pleasing to God, right? So you have a, you know, an ethic that runs across the entire Bible, right? Uh, faithfulness in marriage, uh, uh, treatment of one another, um, not lying and coveting, and all of that runs across the entire. What is? How am I supposed to live my marriage? Or what, certain behaviors are they wrong? I mean, Scripture addresses those issues, right? They have to address it as an entire Bible, right? Now, I have here number two: is Scripture is not exhaustive, right? We've made mention of that in our understanding, even of necessity, right? Scripture is true; it's enough. But it's not all that God could give us, right? It's finite revelation. Now, finite revelation is not saying anything's lacking, right? I mean, it's just simply God could have said more, right? right? So there are two ways that Scripture is not exhaustive, right? God has not told us everything about himself and how he governs history and the nature of the Trinity and the incarnation. I mean, there's a lot of things. That's where I was getting at with speculation, right? So we have to be very careful, right? Romans 8, 28 says, even in our suffering for the people of God, God works out everything for their good. But if you start asking, well, how is this specific thing good? You probably don't have an answer. You got to step back and say, it's all working out, but I don't know. I don't know everything. Right? You lose a loved one. You face a crisis and you say, why is that going on? Well, we have enough to help people with, but God didn't tell us you always specific things, right? He didn't even tell Job. Uh, we, the reader, know, <laughs> but Job, he just simply says to him, trust me, and then he gives him his family back, right? But he still, we don't have any evidence that he says, this is the reason why. Now, Job will know that, right, as he is with him, and we'll know that in the new heavens and new earth, but God hasn't told us everything, right? And secondly, Scripture's not a textbook on every discipline, right? So we have to be careful, right? It's not a textbook on philosophy, economics, mathematics, so this is where we do gain knowledge from, it's still revelation, right? From God's creation, right? So how do you study how DNA works? Well, go to a lab and start looking at DNA. Right? God made it possible for you to study it, but you don't go to chapter and verse and say, this is how DNA works, right? Or this is how you know, various economic theory. Maybe the Bible gives you some notion of, okay, taxes are fine and so on, but how do you get the specifics of it? Well, you're going to have to study consequences and, and whole theories and so on, right? So this is where you have to be very, very careful. Now, some people want to appeal to this and say, well, all truth is God's truth, so therefore what we learn from all the disciplines of psychology and biology and physics and that are almost a kind of second truth to the Bible, and they can overturn the Bible. Now, you have to be very, very careful here, right? So that what I want to say, though, is although Scripture is not a textbook on everything, it still provides an overall framework by which we evaluate, right? So as it, you know, think of, you know, its, its view of creation, its view of truth, and so on, right? It provides a grid. So as we think of psychology, it may, they may say many things about us, but 
Do they understand us as, as creatures? Do they understand us as image bearers? Do they understand us as fallen? Do they understand us in, in terms of what the Bible is saying, right? And as the Bible more specifically touches these disciplines, psychology, sociology, and so on, it's not a textbook on those things, it will help us understand and evaluate those disciplines as well. And I give you some example, right? So you have the theory of evolution. What do we think about that? Well, that has to be looked at on its own merit. It has to be looked at in terms of data and evidence and so on. But we also have scripture. God described how he created the world. And now it's not a scientific treatise. Yet it says something. It says something about how he made the world. It says something about a historic Adam. It says something about a historic fall and so on. So I can't, when I look at those scientific areas, even though all truth is God's truth, I must make sure when scripture addresses something of that relation, scripture has final authority. Right? Scripture ultimately has to then look at the world, right, in a certain way. If I am a neuroscientist and I say, in all my studies, I only see brain matter and no, you know, immaterial soul, you know you've gone wrong. Because the Bible teaches there's such a thing as a mind and an immaterial soul and so on and so on and so on, right? So this is where how we integrate so we don't want to make sufficiency saying it's a textbook on everything. It's not. Yet it provides an overall worldview and grid. As it speaks more directly on issues that pertain to those disciplines, it can evaluate them and critique them. And we then um, use extra biblical data, data carefully, right? So there are things that the Bible doesn't envision. Does the Bible have chapter and verse about whether we should clone people or not? I don't know of one, but the Bible will say something about it in the sense that we'll have to think of who humans are, what cloning is, we'll have to study the, the, the science on that, we'll have to tie it to is this what God's intent would be for us and think through that issue then as Christians. So it, it can be applied from the Bible, but we're going to have to learn things from the world as, as well, even various forms of medicine and treatment. And we have, uh, I have CRT, that's a big issue today of critical race. You have to evaluate as that as a viewpoint. What's it saying about um, humans and the nature of humans? And is that then consistent with the Bible? And at this point, it, most of it's inconsistent, right? So you have to be very, very careful, right? So third area, it doesn't eliminate careful reasoning, right? I mentioned that with the Trinity. And it doesn't set aside even tradition, right? To speak of sufficiency, doesn't mean, or even sola scriptura, that, that there's no confessional standards that are helpful for us. We have all kinds of confessional standards. But what it's saying is that in that, the Bible is final, right? When it speaks on those issues, we still have to have our confessional standards be warranted by the Bible, right? I happen to think that the early confessional statement of the Nicene Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed that gives us Trinity and Christology, I think they're accurate. I receive them as authoritative, but I receive them as authoritative because I think they're true to scripture. If I didn't think they were true to scripture, I would not receive them. I do not receive the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent as authoritative because I think it contradicts scripture at numerous points. And that has to be true of all of our doctrinal uh, statements, right? So as we conclude, right, um, scripture is foundational. I thought I would just read from a couple of places in Psalm 119. Uh, but, you know, Scripture's necessary. Scripture's authoritative. Scripture's sufficient. Tied to its purpose, yet 
right? As it addresses issue, it, it is what gives us a whole grid even to look at the world and, and, and so on, right? So crucial as we bring together disciplines, but it is for my life and godliness. It is enough, right? I have a canon that I need to apply in terms of a whole Bible and so on. Psalm 119, verse 33, the psalmist says, and even this is in the Old Testament as he sang this, and we would say this even more so in light of the coming of Christ, right? Uh, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law. And obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statues, and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant, so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread from your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life and your righteousness. Well, notice, as you know, with Psalm 119, every verse has something to do with the Word of God. Right? Um, in the Old Testament context, particularly the Torah, right? But now we have a whole Bible. How much more should we say, teach me, O Lord, follow all that Scripture says, right? Keep them to the end, right? This is what gives understanding. This is what gives wisdom. This is what gives life and godliness and proper grounding to faith and truth and apart from that I have nothing I've got quicksand right so this is what we need to build our lives on right the rock right? Christ and his word and not just the changing thought of our society or your changing thought right your feelings your subjectivity and so on I don't trust myself you shouldn't trust yourself right let every man be a liar but God be true that should be the attitude. God's word is true. I will have to always critique everyone else's word in light of scripture, but I never critique God, right? That should be the attitude. Let's pray and then we'll conclude, right? Heavenly Father, thank you for the time where we can think about the attributes of scripture, the doctrine of scripture, this foundational, um, our foundation by which we know you, know even ourselves, the world, in a true way that uh, we are thankful that you've not left us in the dark. You've given us a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. What is crucial is not just to talk about these matters and to lay them out, but they need to be put into practice. May we be people who not only hear, but are doers of the word. May we be those who, uh, be those who are those who read scripture, to take it in our hands to delight in your word to understand the whole counsel of God from beginning to end uh, to see it in light of its fulfillment in Christ and all of these great truths so that not one portion of scripture is left um, apart from being applied to our lives and applied in light of its its uh, fulfillment in Christ so that uh, we are those who tremble at your word we fear you we grow in wisdom and most of all uh, we give you the glory for all that you have given to us uh, in Christ Jesus and in the giving of your word. So we thank you for these things. Um, seal them to our hearts. Uh, help us to be those who are uh, more committed to uh, your word and uh, to its obedience in our lives, in our families, in our churches, uh, and in our community. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, 
visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.